Welcome to the Startup Help Desk. We are a set of experienced founders, executives, and investors here to answer your questions about company building and the meaning of life. My name is Sean Burns. I'm a multi-time founder of, of successful startup companies. I'm also an investor and a coach of hundreds of founders. I have made every mistake in the book, and I'm here to share that with you so you don't do the same, because honestly, it's not fun. I'm joined by a pair of excellent founders in Ash and Nick. Hi, everyone. My name's Ash Rust. I'm a pre-seed investor based in San Francisco. I mostly invest in B2B companies based in the US, UK, and Canada through my fund, Sterling Road. And I've also worked at other VC firms like Trinity Ventures and Bullpen Capital, where I was an advisor. Before investing, I was an entrepreneur myself, most notably an early employee at the social media company Clout, as well as the co-founder and CEO of SendHub. These days, I spend all my time coaching founders, and I've mentored more than a thousand startups over the years. Hey, this is Nick Melionis. I am co-founder and CEO of a startup called Rev. We build tools that help folks learn innovation skills and start companies. This is my second startup, so my second tour of duty in startup land, which means I keep signing up for this wild ride. After we sold my first startup, I've had a great opportunity to be able to work closely with early stage founders and have been able to support hundreds of founders, both advising them directly and by way of our startup Rev. With that, I'm so excited to be here and can't wait to jump into the questions. Excellent. And all the questions we will answer today were submitted by founders just like you. So if you have a question you'd like us to answer, just head over to thestartuphelpdesk.com or find us on Twitter as thestartuphd. Let's head over to our first question on our question queue. Nick and Ash, uh, this is a good one. When is my product ready for launch? You've been working on building it. How do you know when you're ready to launch this product you've been creating at your startup company? This is so good. I would say probably now. And so just to paint the picture, Michael Seibel, who's a tremendously successful startup founder, has a great quote. And he talks about startups wanting to find hair on fire problems. And what he says is, if your friend was standing next to you and their hair was on fire, they wouldn't care about anything else. They would be only focused on putting out that fire and they'd be willing to use something as unsophisticated as a brick to put out that fire. And so in this case, a brick is a perfect analogy for V1 of your product. If you can deliver a brick that's able to start solving part of the problem for your first users, you're in a really good spot. And to continue the analogy, that brick is a great building block for you to add more bricks and ultimately build a product that brings your full vision to life. I'll pause there though and turn it to Ash. Ash, hopefully you've got something that's a little bit more specific than just building with bricks. Well, how does how do you put a fire out with a brick? You gotta ask Michael about that one. He's got the great quote. I'm just uh, I'm just pulling up for the podcast. Oh, you're just the messenger, right? That's right. Coming soon in the Startup Help Desk video hour, we're gonna see Nick and Ash put out a fire using a brick on Nick's head. <laughs> That's that, too good. That is interesting, to say the least. Um, all right, yeah. So my thought is also a quote from some local luminary. So back when I was at Clout, uh, when dinosaurs roamed the earth, Jack Dorsey came by and he said that if you're happy with a launch you've waited too long. And I think that's the main theme of my answer. So if your product is ready for launch, that's basically as soon as anyone is willing to use it. 
if if anyone, literally anybody, is willing to give it a shot, you should be willing to let them. It's okay if it fails. That means we're going to get another chance. We're going to get some feedback on that. And it's okay to start with absolutely no product at all. If you can do it manually, start there. Now, one thing that comes back often, especially in the B2B space, if you're talking to people who are maybe building harder tech startups, maybe robotics, AI, that kind of stuff, they'll often push back and say, well, we can't possibly iterate that way and launch something small because we're building something so difficult that it's got to all be in place. And I don't agree with that. I think that you can test small parts or smaller versions of your product very early, and that customer feedback will actually influence things a lot, just as much perhaps as it would a SaaS business. And is this is an interesting question I hadn't think about until now, both Ash and Nick. Let's say you launch it. Is it, is it possible to be too early? Like, is there any sign you could look for to say, actually, we are too early? Like, we were... We, we listen to this podcast. We're like, you can't be too early. We launched it. Whoops. No, we actually are too early. If, if your first version of your product isn't delivering some value in form of actually solving part of the problem, that would be too early. And so I would say that ultimately it's subjective in terms of figuring out, does this first iteration deliver some form of value? If so, you weren't too early. The other thing to consider is there's potential regulatory issues. Perhaps if you are in the healthcare space and your V1 is lax on data controls and isn't HIPAA compliant, that could kill your company. Same if you're in the fintech space and maybe you're commingling customer funds in your MVP. That is also dangerous. So you do have to be careful about some things that you do at that MVP stage. You can't cut all the corners if you're in certain markets. But by and large, you have to be very aggressive about that because we're trying to understand if there's any demand for your idea at all. No, that makes sense. On that note, too, to continue with that. So ultimately, this is about proving demand. And so when it comes time to deliver this first iteration, as you've mentioned, one, you can do it manually. Two, you can be able to create prototypes. So you can use tools like Figma, Sketch, or Envision to create these simple, just visual representations of your products. You can use no-code builders. You can use all of these things in order to prove appetite, start de-risking, and ultimately start delivering some value to your users. So Nick, would you say that you you know that you're ready as soon as you have a drawing of your product in the back of a napkin? That's when you should launch? I think you're pretty close <laughs> at that point. Yep. If, if, if you know, if you've got a good read on who your target user is, show them that napkin. Start delivering some value to them. So if you can't put a cup on top of your product because your product is just a napkin with some writing on it, you're too, you're, you waited too long. That is the lesson. We That's right. That's the signal. <laughs> okay, Nick, what is uh, what else is on our question queue for today? We want to answer more than one question in this episode. So what else? Hang we on. We just have missed coining a new term, napkin viable product, NVP. <laughs> yes. See if that one's available. Oh, the swag for the oh, show is going to be great. We have Brandon napkins that say MVP on them. That's going to be great. That is so good. All right, let's get into the second question here. So uh, question for Ash and Sean. How long does it take in fundraising before you know if you'll be able to raise or not? And so Ash, why don't we turn that one to you first? Yeah, bad news again, folks. Sorry. Uh, the time it takes is the whole time. So if you're going to fundraise, you need to plan for three months of full focus for at least one person on the team, almost always the CEO, and that's going to take at least 100 meetings. But the sad thing is that most of your yeses 
are coming at the end of that process. So you're going to get 90% no's, even if you're really good at fundraising. And the vast majority of the yeses that you receive are going to come at the very, very end of that process as you just get better at uh, responding to feedback, better at pitching, and you probably generate momentum in the round as well from existing investors or small checks. So until you've done those full three months, those full 100 meetings, you just don't know if the round is going to come together. And very often, people get their term sheet or their lead investor as one of their last few meetings. So it really could be the 99th meeting. Sorry. But Ash, isn't that by definition, like if you're going to get your term sheet at the end, you're going to stop your process. So it's almost always going to be at the end, right? Not always. Plenty of times a term sheet might only occupy 40 to 75% of a round and you may still have to keep raising. But if you've already generated momentum in the round and then the lead comes in at the end, then yes, you would close. Gotcha. I agree with everything you said. Uh, let's see, what can I add to that? Well, one thing is, you can get a sense earlier in the process if you're pitching investors and there's just there's no engagement, there's no excitement, especially if the concerns or the questions they're raising indicate a common problem that your market's too small or you're not there's no in excitement around the space that you're in. Because the reality is, if there is potential, investors will at least engage with you. And so if everyone is just turned off by you and you're not getting any engagement in the form of just follow-up meetings, simply, not even any interest in investing, just follow-up meetings with investors, you're really probably not going to magically turn a corner and all of a sudden have great investors that want to invest. It does happen, but it's not super common. And so look for those kind of signs of engagement. And again, Ash is right. You might not, that engagement might not turn into anything, but investors that are not engaged or not interested and there's no energy, it's one thing you can look for early to say, maybe now is not the time. Maybe we have to get further. Or maybe this is not something that venture investors will ever be interested in. The is there a thing, level of interest that's needed, Sean? Uh, you're a better person to answer. I will say this. I always, if I'm starting a fundraising process, I know for a fact that most of the people I pitch will say no. I'm not looking for them to say yes. I'm just saying, okay, cool. If I pitch this investor, let's say you're pitching a larger fund that has multiple partners. Are they interested enough to have me meet and present to one of their other partners? Just one. They could have a dozen partners, but do they think it's interesting enough to bring to another partner? If they are, that's the first indication for me that there's something here because they're willing to take up the time from their partners to look at it. If you're pitching funds that only have one partner, that doesn't help. But any fund that has more than one partner, that's a strong engagement indicator. The it's second engagement prejudice on the air, we're recording, <laughs> no concern. And I think that finally the public's going to see the mask slipping. <laughs> for those of you wondering, Ash's fund doesn't, he has. He is the partner of his fund. And so that was that was sort of a subtle jab at him. Uh, the second the second uh, you say <laughs> the second indication that I've often found is that investors that really do think it's interesting will want somebody they know to try it out. And so if it's a consumer product, they might download and install it themselves, or somebody, an analyst at their firm might do that. If it's an enterprise product, they might introduce you to somebody who wants to maybe not even try it, but hear the sales pitch. That's another area of engagement that's pretty promising. Um, it doesn't mean that they're interested in investing. It just means they're interested enough to learn more, which is the most you can hope for. But it also means you're not totally off base. If you don't see either of those things happening, then 
I think your chances of actually finding somebody and closing around are not high. You can do it. It can be a numbers game, but usually the indications of engagement are, are leading indicators, put it that way. In my experience, but Ash, I don't know. You're a solo GP. What are what are the are there any indicators you can share with the audience about what the way you like how people can tell you're interested in their business if they're pitching you? Yeah, so I usually suggest that people look for a forty percent second meeting return. So if you're meeting with seed funds, uh, those people who are writing maybe five hundred k to three million dollar checks. If you're meeting with that category, look at just that group of meetings and see if 40% of them, uh, with having done at least 10, get back to you and want to do a second meeting within 24 hours. They demonstrate excitement. Same if you're going after larger VCs. Put them in their own category, $4 million plus checks. Meet with 10 of them. If at least 40% want to go to that second meeting, immediately they're reaching out, they're excited, then that indicates you could, uh, you should continue pursuing that category as well. For most founders, obviously, you won't get to that kind of level of interest early on. So you should focus on the smaller checks, perhaps, in most cases. And Ash, I've heard this. And is this true that if you really are interested as an investor in in investing in a company, that there's a secret handshake you will teach the founder? And if they don't learn that secret handshake, then they're not going to happen. I can neither confirm nor deny (laughs) anything that's been said. (laughs) the secret handshake is real folks we have confirmation on the air tell your friends if anything happens and nick and i avenge us avenge us (laughs) that's right everybody will avenge you (laughs) (laughs) oh my ah cool so okay we've wasted people's time on those two questions enough there's got to be a third question (laughs) here somewhere ash what else is on our question queue for today Yeah, last question for today is how do you hire for positions when you don't have any experience yourself? For example, if you're not a salesperson or you've never sold products before, how do you hire salespeople? That is a fantastic question. By the way, I want to point out everyone deals with this because there is no one that is an expert in all possible disciplines. Maybe it's sales, maybe it's HR, maybe it's finance. You are inevitably going to have to hire people where you don't know anything about their position. You've never hired anybody before. You haven't done it yourself. So how do you do it? So you're not alone. The first thing is don't avoid it. You'd be surprised how many founders avoid hiring for positions they don't know how to hire for. They're like, I'll just do it myself. And that is never the right answer um, overall. You have to figure this out. So first, do your research. Talk to people who had that job at other companies. You're not trying to recruit them away, but let's say you have to hire a CFO. You've never hired a CFO before. But, you know, Talk to a bunch of CFOs at other companies. Ask them what they look for in companies they work for. What do they think you should do? What kind of process should you use? You learn from people who have that job elsewhere. You're not recruiting them away. You're just asking them for help. Second, there are a lot of recruiters that specialize in these fields. They're sales-focused recruiters. If you've never hired for a position, it means there's going to be nobody in your social network that has worked in that position. So you're going to have to rely on recruiters to help you fill those sorts of roles. You can also bring in advisors who have done it. Many, especially if you take an investment from a venture firm, venture firms have sales partners, marketing partners on staff who can help you interview, help you design a recruiting process. Your advisors can be a very good asset for filling these sorts of positions. 
And finally, I think this is something that, that founders largely under underestimate, which is maybe you've never hired a salesperson, but you've had people sell you things in the past. You may not have ever hired a marketer, but you've reacted to marketing. So you know what you like, you know what sales pitches might work. And so the candidates that are the best are going to help you understand how they are going to be that person. How are they going to be that salesperson that works, that marketing person that works? They will help you bridge that gap. And if, by the way, if they can't do that, they may not be the right fit because that first person you're bringing in any given function, they're going to have to figure these things out. Anyway, Nick, I just, that was a whole bunch of stuff I just threw out there. Correct me. Disagree with me. Tell me everybody how I'm, you know, ridiculous for deciding that I can absolutely hire circus clowns, even though I've never been a circus clown before. He's asking for it, Nick. There was no well, equivocation there. Please let it go. <laughs> That's right. Well, if that is a startup you're working on, then we should talk offline because that is the first that we've heard of this one. So uh, some quick notes here. Generally speaking, I think you, you added some absolute gems. I think the key thing is, number one, you want to be able to leverage your network. Ultimately, if you're a founder, then you may have founder friends who have hired for similar roles. And generally speaking, you might have a group of folks that are your champions. They want to see you succeed. That could be investors, it could be advisors and other colleagues. So step one is leverage your network, make it easy for them to be able to refer the right kind of candidates for you. And in that process, you want to make sure that somebody along the way can be able to help facilitate some form of the evaluation. And so ultimately, you can ask either an advisor or somebody who does have success in this kind of role to help you be able to at least define the right kind of process in order to evaluate a candidate. If you can create the right kind of playbook in order for you to follow, then as you start doing some interviews, you'll start building the right kind of framework and the right kind of criteria with which to analyze somebody. And then lastly, the theme that has come out uh, from several of us during this conversation is that if you can talk to others who've successfully hired somebody for a similar role recently, that's huge. Ask them about the process, take them through a user interview, so to speak, and figure out what worked for them and see if you can bake that into your process. So in short, stand on the shoulders of those who've done it. So in some cases, though, right, there are roles here where you would just have to learn to do it yourself. I accept that maybe if you're building you know, a biotech company, you can't do everything and learn some of those roles yourself. It would take too long. But perhaps if it's SaaS and you're talking about sales, can't you learn that yourself? Such a good call. I definitely think that learn enough so that you can be dangerous in that skill set, so to speak. You can start doing something in it, and then you at least have a good criteria for what success can look like. I, I'm not so I'm going to disagree on that front, but because let's say you're a founder of a SaaS company, you can sell and you should sell, by the way, you should absolutely sell. But the way you sell is probably not a way that a an account executive you hire can sell. The way a founder sells a product, a business is going to be different than the people you bring on board. And an account executive you hire may be very different and challenge what you're doing in different ways. I'm not sure you can rely on, you can learn how to sell your product your way, but that doesn't mean you, you're good at sales and it doesn't mean it helps you understand who that right salesperson is that will help you build that overall. It can help a little bit, but actually what I found is if founders try to hire sellers that sell the way they do, it doesn't work nearly as often as you would like. And it's typically like a coin flip on how often it works. Now the question is, can you hire sellers 
for example, who are used to selling products like yours to buyers like yours in a sales process like yours, which may be very different than how you as a founder sell, that could be pretty different. So you should sell. I'm just not as convinced it's going to help you very much in this process. Does that mean that the sales playbook that you write in those early days about how to make a sale when you're making those first sales isn't really relevant to the actual people that you hire on the sales team initially? It's a starting point, but I've never seen a case where people just can pick that up and run with it because founders and the way that they can sell is just so different than account executives. I find that the real sales playbook is almost always written once that first salesperson's on board and you start to figure out what of what of the parts of what you did can somebody pick up and run with and what parts can't they? So you need to start somewhere. You don't want to hire somebody to start from scratch, but you inevitably figure out that, oh, hey, I was doing this. And yeah, it, like I'll give you a basic example. Hey, when I outreach to cold prospects on LinkedIn, they respond to me. And for some reason, they don't respond to this account executive because they're not the CEO of the company. And so you can start changing it. You're like, well, what if the account executive reaches out for my CEO LinkedIn account, and all of a sudden you realize that these the customer is expecting to meet the CEO and I'm an account executive and they feel cheated. So how are we going to do outreach to prospects if I'm not the CEO to get their attention and have them engage with me in the first place? That's just a small example, but it's an example. Great point. Almost. <laughs> you know what eventually all of my insanity and all of my wrong answers were going to kind of come around and like any sort of broken clock i was going to hit the right time at some point eventually and we are approaching 12 episodes so you know probabilities <laughs> <laughs> oh good times we are unfortunately out of time for today uh it was awesome a lot of good answers a lot of good questions and by the way much multiple perspectives. Ash and Nick and I started doing this podcast because we realized we disagree on a lot of stuff, but that's good. It gives all of you multiple perspectives to consider when you get answers to your questions. As always, Ash and Nick, a great discussion. Thank you uh, for all the info. Thank you both. Absolute blast as always. Yeah, great to chat, folks. See you soon. The Startup Help Desk is now closed. We will be back. If you have questions you want us to answer in future episodes, find us online, thestartuphelpdesk.com or on Twitter at thestartuphd. We'd love to answer your questions. In the meantime, until our next episode, good luck in building your business.